Well, I'm nervous to preach this morning, which sounds funny because I've been preaching, um, you know, like 50 weeks for nine years in a row. Uh, I, I hadn't preached regularly before that, and so in 2012 when we launched uh, as a, a core team, I began regularly weekly uh, preparing a message, and, uh, and very rarely over that nine-year period uh, have I ever prepared a message fully uh, and then just felt compelled to go in a different direction kind of on the spur of the moment. And that's kind of what happened last night. Uh, I changed the topic, I changed the passage, I changed and I wrote up all these notes and then I woke up this morning to refresh them and something happened and I lost my notes. So I'm nervous for like four reasons this morning. Uh, and so I usually kind of preach from a, a bit of a manuscript and uh, some familiarity having thought about something for a week. So uh, I asked for grace a little bit this morning from you and, uh, and we're going going to, to cover a topic that is sensitive. Uh, we're going to cover a topic that's difficult and, uh, and that for many people represents uh, a bit of personal pain. Uh, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I don't often uh, change my preaching calendar based on uh, sort of evangelical days of the, of the calendar, uh, but felt compelled to this morning for a number of reasons that I'll get into um, in, uh, throughout this, this sermon. But until then, let me say a prayer, and, uh, and then we'll read John chapter 8, and, uh, and so let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the time to gather uh, as a body of Christ this morning. Uh, we ask that you would draw near to us, that you would speak to us by your Spirit. Uh, I pray that you would uh, strengthen me and equip me to say uh, your words, and, uh, and I pray that, uh, that your words would be uh, meaningful and life to those who need to hear it. We pray for your favor and your blessing on our time together, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Sanctity of Life Sunday um, um, is an opportunity for the church to do a couple things, really. Number one, to affirm uh, the biblical teaching when it comes to life and where it began and when it began, uh, and as an opportunity for us to highlight the goodness of God in the creation of a human being in the womb. But it also gives us an opportunity to explain and to extend the grace of God to sinners. Um, and so this morning, we're going to do both of those things. We want to affirm the biblical truths and convictions that we hold concerning life, uh, when it begins, and, and also to understand the sin of taking life, uh, but also to explain and extend the grace of God. I came to a conviction uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, just a personal conviction um, that, um, that abortion would um, in the future be looked at in the same way that, uh, that we might look at slavery or in the same way that we might look at the Holocaust. And I don't use that lightly. Um, I don't exaggerate. Um, when you consider abortion and when you consider uh, the taking of a human life and the numbers and the scale in which America does, uh, I don't consider the Holocaust um, uh, an outrageous um, comparison. So I came to this conviction about 10 years ago that when I'm older and my children and grandchildren um, have time to look back, they might ask me in the same way that I asked uh, my grandfather, 
you know, what did you do in World War II and, and, and how did you fight against uh, in Germany and in uh, Europe? And, and what was the drive? What did you do to stop that evil? And I had that conviction that I wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't doing enough to stand for life, that I wasn't doing enough to have grace and mercy on those who have been a part of the abortion industry and individuals who have also contributed to abortion. And so I engaged in annually um, participating in 40 Days of Life campaigns. Uh, it's a prayerful, peaceful demonstration, an opportunity where for a period of 40 days, uh, twice a year, to go out to uh, um, Planned Parenthood and other places like that, and just to simply pray, uh, just to simply seek God um, on behalf of those who are, are having an abortion and those who are performing abortions, and just that the grace of God uh, would be demonstrated there. Um, I don't think I do enough. I think that, uh, that it will be a source of shame in some ways, that I could have done more or that I wish I had done more. And yet it seems so overwhelming. It seems like such an enormous issue that what could one person do to make a difference? And so this week when I received an email uh, from Northcare Clinic, it, this is the, the email that they sent. They sent, uh, it says, this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and it's a day where we grieve the tragedy of abortion since its legalization in January of 1973. We mourn for the children's lives who have been lost, and we grieve for the women who felt like abortion was their only choice. The Pregnancy Resource Clinic continues to offer free medical services and support to women to show them that they are not alone, that they are capable, and that life is a great option for them. They also facilitate support groups where women who have experienced abortion find healing, freedom, and forgiveness. Grace changes everything. And we'll talk more about the clinic uh, later on in our, in our service at the end here. But it may be a minute before we get there. I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to start with uh, a clear affirmation on my part and to articulate it as best as I can that we affirm and I affirm the biblical truth that life begins at conception. I remember uh, Systematic Theology 2, Allison, and we had this sort of demonstration where he wrote uh, all these things on the board about these different theories about where does a soul come from? If a soul is separate from our body and our body is conceived at birth or at conception, uh, that sounds stupid, conceived conception. Um, but if that's where it happens, where does the soul come from? And if the soul endures after the body, and it was a fascinating conversation, but through it all, we came out to this clear teaching from Scripture that life begins at conception. And we see this in Scripture in Psalm 30, 139, which is kind of the standard text there in verses 13 through 16, where uh, the psalmist is affirming that you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Passages like this demonstrate that God knows a person before they're even conceived and that they are perfectly created for the purpose for which he creates them. So when we talk about this, maybe not for everyone here, but for many people here, um, to talk about the creation of life and the creation of a person in the womb um, encourages us and helps us understand how God created, but it also might uh, bring with it conviction in how flippantly we think about life, maybe in our former days. And so I want to explain and extend the grace of God also as part of this message today. Because the enemy of our souls would have us to believe that there is no grace, that there is no forgiveness for those who have committed a sin like abortion or others. But truthfully, there is no sin that falls outside of the grace of God, except for what is known as the blasphemy of the Spirit. That is when the Holy Spirit reveals to you that Jesus is Lord and he is worthy to be trusted and that he is the Lord uh, and and is worthy to be the Lord of your life and for you to um, receive him as such. The blasphemy of the Spirit indicates that you would reject Jesus and hold on to your willful, independent, selfish pride that says, I don't need Jesus. That is an unforgivable sin where the grace of God that is extended to you, you forfeit that grace of God when he reveals to you who Jesus is and you have an opportunity to trust him. Unforgivable in the rejection of Jesus. But every sin besides that, absolutely forgivable. And there is no sin beyond which the grace of God cannot touch. You think about... um, the, you know, the, the picture that everybody points to, the convicted serial killer who gave his life to Christ with James Dobson in the 80s or 90s and received the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and, and received the death penalty as a just punishment for his sins, but rejoiced that God would save him. And that blows our minds. That a moral person, according to Matthew 7, 21 through 23, could be condemned to hell Because not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, uh, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, which is to believe. And in 7, 22 and 23, Jesus says, many people will come to me on that day and say, Lord, but didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? And he will say, get away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. So the rejection of Jesus by a moral person merits eternal punishment while the receiving of grace and mercy and forgiveness by the worst of sinners can result in eternal salvation for the glory of God. And that's a mystery. And it's, frankly, an offense to people who are righteous. But in Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable. And in Luke 18, 9, he says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous in and of themselves. And they treated others with contempt. And so Jesus tells this parable for those who think they're righteous 
and treat others with contempt. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified before God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So for those who walk in contemptuous self-righteousness with the idea that they can stand before God justified because of their own morality, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of grace to undeserving sinners. As an unbeliever, someone from a Catholic background, but really no, um, no sort of personal faith, I considered myself an atheist uh, and walked in ways consistent with that belief. But it wasn't until... Um, I found myself with a pregnant girlfriend and an abortion clinic phone number in my own pocket that I began to seek God and I began to ask him if he was real, that he would make himself known so that I could escape from the issues that I was dealing with. I couldn't sleep. I had all these issues. I was struggling with peace and I didn't want to uh, cause destruction even as an atheistic person and so I, I pursued God, and the very first prayer he answered was sending a stranger to my door to share the gospel with me. And the very second prayer he answered after I received Christ was two weeks later at a ski-in, ski-out in Crested Butte, receiving a phone call after skiing all day uh, with friends from uh, my girlfriend that, that uh, she had miscarried. And as hard as that was and as difficult as that was, I'll never forget taking that abortion clinic phone number, scribbled on a piece of paper, tearing it up and throwing it in a trash can there in Colorado. I'll always remember where it was and where it happened because it was that moment that God found a way that glorified himself that in, in some way helped me as well not to participate in the course of action that I had determined. So when I talk about the grace of God it's not some theory that I have about God's grace, something that I've personally experienced in this particular area. Arguably the world's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, by John Newton, also was not just a theory. He was a slave trader for a large portion of his life, a blasphemer. He was known as the great blasphemer. Um, since the age of 11, he had lived a life at sea. He had a reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which shocked even his fellow sailors. He sank so low at uh, one point in his life that, um, that he was just ashamed of his own behavior. Even in spite of the fact that his mother had prayed that he would become a minister and had taught him the scriptures early, 
But some of those early childhood teachings came to mind in the midst of a great storm that he endured, where for a period of 10 or 11 hours, from noon until 1 a.m., he was tied to the helm and uh, forced to steer the ship through uh, while every other sailor was pumping water out. And in the midst of this storm, a passage came to mind. Proverbs 1, 24 through 31 says, I have, Because I called to you and you refused to listen to me, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my rebukes, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you and when terror strikes you like a storm and calamity comes upon you like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me, but I won't answer. You will seek me diligently, but will not find me because you hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord and would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their ways and have their fill of their own devices. And that snapshot perfectly described John Newton's life in that moment tied to a hole in the midst of a raging storm, and he remembered his rejection of God. Having come through that storm, he, his thoughts then turned to Luke eleven thirteen, which says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And that day, tied to the helm on March 21st, 1748, Newton remembered that on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Many years later, as an old man, Newton wrote in his diary, I'm not well able to write, but I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. Only God's grace could take a rude, profane, slave-trading sailor and transform him into a child of God. And Newton never ceased to stand in awe of God's grace and work in his life. He was called into ministry at age 39 and labored in preaching the gospel for another 43 years. And it was his influence that led William Wilberforce and others to combat and lead to the abolition of slave trade in England. Even in his last days, Newton said, I remember two things. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember these, these two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. He went on to write Amazing Grace based on 1 Chronicles 17, where David says, I went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. And based on that, John Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come, and tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. 
We tend to have this idea of symmetry. We kind of like symmetry, that idea of balance uh, between two sides fixed on a center point. Maybe you have one of those apps that distorts your face for better or worse, right? And one of those is like a mirror app and, and one side of your face is perfectly symmetrical to the other which is not natural. Everybody's face is asymmetrical, but we tend to appreciate symmetry in, in life and in art and other things. And often in theology, we sort of think in symmetrical ways that to the degree that God is angry and wrathful and holy and condemning must be to the same degree that he's compassionate and loving. But God does not present himself as symmetrical in Scripture. Sam Alberry wrote uh, uh, an article that I'll quote from here in a minute describing the most repeated verse in the Bible. And he says that God does not present himself as symmetrical, equal parts anger and compassion. And he gives us an example, uh, the book of Lamentations. You don't have to turn there, but Lamentations, as its name describes, um, is full of laments and um, is a book that describes the harsh realities of living in judgment from God and the difficulties uh, that, that come with it as well. I, I do know my Bible. I'm not just wasting time before I find Lamentations. I think it's right after Jeremiah. Yeah, there it is. <clears throat> in Lamentations, five chapters of uh, sadness and lament and judgment. The Lord's anger and compassion uh, is, seems to be missing from all of it. But as you sort of slug through Lamentations, um, you get to chapter 3, and he starts like he does the other chapters. I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely he turns his hand against me again and again all day long. He's made my flesh and my soul, my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. And it just goes on and on like this, right? If you're feeling happy, Lamentations is the cure, all right? Read a little bit of Lamentations, uh, and it's a for sure cure for any joy that you might have in your life at the moment. But for this sort of mid-spot in the center of Lamentations. Uh, he says in verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then again in verse 31, he acknowledges this truth that the Lord will not cast off forever. And though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of man. The writer, I'm quoting from Alberry here, he says, the writer continues to be unflinching in acknowledging the pain of judgment. God is casting off, causing grief, afflicting. This, the writer has no doubt. 
But while such judgment is undeniable, it's not what lies deepest in God's purpose for his people. God's judgment will not be forever. He will yet have compassion. And most fundamentally, it is not what God is about. It's not from his heart. God is doing it. He means to do it. But it's not where his heart ultimately lies. What is central to God instead is his compassion and faithfulness. His judgment is real, but, but his love and anger are not symmetrical. As God's own words about himself show clearly, words so foundational they resound and echo throughout the Old Testament. The Lord in Exodus 34, 6 passed before Moses, and this is what he proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I was curious, if is that really the most repeated verse in the Bible? And so I, I looked up those words that demonstrate the compassion and the steadfast love of God. And it is repeated often. I don't know if technically it's, I think the Lord, Moses obeyed the Lord is mentioned 72 times, that exact configuration. But this sentiment and the repetition of this passage demonstrating the overwhelming grace of God and the mercy of God, and the compassion of God is throughout. Alberry says it's the banner hanging over everything else God shows us about himself. He says it's his penned tweet, right? It's the first thing you see when you go to his page. God is slow to anger. He's not touchy and explosive. He's not trigger happy. As Ray Ortland has put it, God is not itching to bring down the hammer against you. We have to drive him to that. Instead, his spontaneous heart is love toward us. God is not slow to love. God is slow to anger. And it's his love that keeps the engine running, always ready to go at a moment's notice. In contrast to that, his anger has to be worked up within him. Those two do not occupy the same place in his affections. Love abounds where anger doesn't. And it's love he possesses in boundless measure, not anger. God's anger is real, he says, but it's not central. Love and wrath are not perfectly balanced on some divine fulcrum, where God leans heavily and unmistakably on one more than the other. It's his love that comes from the heart, and therein lies the wonderful news and great comfort for his people. Why does this matter? Why does this matter today? Why does this matter at all? And I think this. I think because the enemy of our souls, the accuser wants to convince you that God is all wrath and he's all anger and he's all hatred and that he's, he's waiting at every moment just to get you. Just to catch you or to remind you of your shame or to remind you of your guilt or to remind you that you deserve punishment. And the enemy of our souls wants that. I remember hearing this weird story in the early days of being a Christian. I don't know where I heard it, and I, I probably am going to say it wrong. But if I remember right from the early 90s, um, there was this South American landowner, and he reluctantly sold a house when he fell on hard times to somebody else who wanted it. But he said, I want to retain possession of this post at the front of the house, and this nail on the post. Other than that, you can have everything. 
Does that ring a bell? Do you remember reading this? I hope I'm not making this up. I may be making it up. (laughs) But it's a story I heard and I remember this way. Years later, when he wanted his property back and when the current owner refused to sell it to him, he sent notice that he still owned that post and that nail and he began weekly hanging carcasses of rotting animals on that post so that it became unbearable. So that every week, through possession of that one single post and that one single nail, it drove the occupant of the entire property crazy and he agreed to sell. That story reminds us that the enemy wants to own a post with a nail on it in your conscience, constantly reminding you of the shame or the sin that you caused. That he would constantly remind me of that piece of paper that I carried in my pocket for those years before I became a Christ follower. And it's only in Christ that I can say that paper is buried in a landfill somewhere because I threw it away in Crested Butte when God delivered me by his own grace and his own mercy. And I think this matters because our culture would tell you that there can only be two ways in regard to the abortion issue. I think I have a picture um, here that kind of depicts it. I sent this to Ryan late at night or early in the morning. There it is. But our culture would shout that if you're on the left side here, that if you're pro-choice and pro-woman, that there's a mob of people on that cliff shouting loudly at the people on the right side of that cliff that are pro-life and are shouting loudly. And, And what's lost in the middle is this struggling woman who doesn't know what to do or finds herself in an unwanted pregnancy and feels the condemnation of one group or the anger and the hatred of another group. So I want to present to you in the final sort of minutes of the sermon here, um, in John 8, 2 through 11, a third way. And it's not surprising that it's a way of grace. I had a fun conversation with someone this week and they were asking me about a hard passage and I loved their reply. They said, this is the most un-Jesus-like thing that Jesus did <laughs> in calling this woman uh, from Tyre and Sidon a dog, you know, wrestling. I was like, man, keep wrestling with that. There's a lot of good reasons for why that happened and why this happened, um, but keep wrestling with that passage. It's, it's good for you to question and for you to dig deep into it and, and to understand it. I think it shows the grace of God, but it, if there's an opposite passage that is the most Jesus-like thing that Jesus ever does, it's John 8, 2 through 11. And I I read this for you in just a minute with sort of this disclaimer that you'll find in your own notes that this passage doesn't belong in uh, the most reliable, most ancient texts. Uh, It seems to have been an addition, and most scholars agree that it's probably not part of John's original gospel, though it does show up in early manuscripts. It doesn't denote anything unworthy of sound doctrine. It's best to view this passage, I'm quoting this from a commentator, it's best to view this as something that happened, but not originally in John's gospel. So with that in mind, let's read John 8, 2 through 11. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this large crowd of people sitting, listening to Jesus teach. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Just stop there. This is not an act of compassion by these women, uh, by these Pharisees. Uh, they use this woman in her shame, caught in adultery as a trap for Jesus. And they presented themselves in the same way that that p- picture presents one side and another woman in the middle of that picture. And their only goal was to trap Jesus. They wanted Jesus to choose their side, the legalistic side. She broke the law and she has to be stoned, the law says. Which, by the way, they conveniently left out the full context and application of that passage, right? Deuteronomy 22 says the man and the woman should be brought out. Both of them. They were essentially saying, choose our side or face the consequences. Affirm the law of Moses, carry out the punishment, violate or violate the law of Moses and sin against God. What would Jesus do? How would he escape the trap? Look at the rest of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he once more bent down and wrote on the ground. I've heard pastors speculate what was he writing. Some said it might have been the names of um, Pharisees or teachers that had also fallen in the sin of adultery. It's all speculation. We don't even know what he wrote or anything, but whatever he wrote... When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And he stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus avoids the trap, avoids the consequences, avoids what they thought they had him narrowed into this trap where he had to choose one way or the other. And Jesus gives grace both to the Pharisees and to the woman. He restores her dignity. He lifts her head in front of the crowd. Neither do I condemn you with the instruction to go and sin no more. I think in many ways people avoid this conversation in churches because of the great shame that they feel. One in four women uh, have had an abortion. Those statistics aren't outside the church, they're inside the church. Um, For every abortion, there is a a participating uh, male who encourages, whether it's a father, a boyfriend, or a husband. Uh, It is... Uh, it is one of those things that doesn't, it's not out there somewhere, it's here. And we're afraid to talk about this, maybe because we fear that God's presentation of himself is symmetrical, that he's equal parts wrath and anger and fury 
and judgment and destruction and equal parts love and compassion. But it's not true. Jesus shows this third way of grace where there is grace for the sinner. There is grace for the one who feels ashamed. There is grace for the one who thinks that your sin is too great, who has listened to the voice of the enemy that says, he'll never forgive you. Look at what you've done. Look at your nakedness. Does the enemy have a foothold in your life that keeps you from experiencing the grace of God? Do you constantly see yourself as worthy of punishment? This is the beauty of the gospel, that whenever Satan reminds me of my former life, I can say, my sin was cast into the wastebasket at the ski-in, ski-out back in Colorado. It's not remembered any longer. That according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the most repeated verse in the Bible is that God is steadfast in love, bounding in mercy and grace and compassion. The beauty of the gospel is you do deserve punishment, but Jesus took it on himself. He took our shame, hanging mostly naked on a cross for sin that he didn't commit. And to deny that we have sin is an error on one side, like Luke 18 says, the one want to be justified in their own self-righteousness and contempt for sinners. That is just as much sinful and erring on the side of acting like you're not a sinner, as much as it is for the other person to say that there is a sin that you've committed that God can't forgive. The truth is that the grace and mercy of God is demonstrated in the gospel because in God's perfect holiness and righteousness, he doesn't minimize sin. He doesn't wink at it and say, it's no big deal. It doesn't really matter. He doesn't change the law so that by some kind of cosmic loophole, that sin didn't count. He enforces the full penalty of sin. He doesn't withhold the wrath of God. He doesn't say your sin and my sin isn't serious. He doesn't reduce the sentence or change the law. He allows the full consequence of sin and its punishment to be poured out completely on his own son, Jesus Christ. Who crucified Jesus? You say, oh, Pontius Pilate did. It was the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. It was the scribes. It was the mob. It was Rome. It was me. No, Scripture says God had his own son crucified because it demonstrates the love of God for us, the sinner, who needed rescuing that God poured out his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord, the Lord, but God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the banner that God hangs. Stop beating yourself up over the sin that's forgiven. Allow the enemy... No more posts and no more nails in your conscience. If you're in Christ, your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. You're free, you're forgiven, you're cleansed. Whether that regards abortion, whether that regards murder, or whether that regards 
lying or cheating on your taxes or being self-righteous. All sin is covered at the cross if you'll just receive it. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, what thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. What has he provided? He's provided grace that covers all your sin. Mercy and forgiveness and the opportunity for you to experience the grace of God for the glory of God. And that's the message that he's put on my heart today. Uh, we're going to sing, and then I've got a video from the North Care Women's Clinic, and I'm going to put Carly on the spot. She's going to talk us through some of the resources for those who might be currently struggling with this particular issue. I don't want you to go away without practical, actionable uh, things that you can do. And so we're going to sing first, and then Carly's going to come and help us out. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It's been my prayer uh, this week, or actually this last 24 hours or so, that you would uh, take this humbly thrown together a bit of words and scripture and use it for your glory. Ultimately, what I desire is that somebody who needs to see and experience the gospel and the grace of, uh, of you, that they would hear it fresh and for the first time maybe, and that it would, their, the words would echo in their ears, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.